This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is summer solstice, June 21st. Early morning uh, for us, uh, so markets still continue to be down um, slightly. This is the third day the rallies lost steam. S&P anyway, the industri- Dow Jones Industrials up a little bit, um, and we, we've seen vol- volatility drop even even more um, so far. Volatility sitting at thirteen point five. Uh, Tim, you know what do we make about this rally and it's kind of losing steam over the last few days? And let's just do an update. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the most interesting thing that you said there was the S&P vol at 13 and a half. I mean, it is, you know, volatility has really collapsed. Um, and you see the kind of the FOMO kicking in from both the hedge fund and retail. You know, it doesn't matter why stocks are going up. You just know that they're going up. And there's been there have been some week long stretches here where you just feel like no matter what the news is, they're going to be up every day. You know, this morning. FedEx had a really ugly uh, report uh, and a really ugly forecast, and that's a pretty important proxy uh, for for U.S. commerce, right? And when when they're seeing double-digit drops in volumes in the U.S., you would think people would take notice. Uh, Tesla caught a downgrade from a sell-side, big uh, bulge bracket sell-side firm this morning. And while both of those names are down, now they both open green, which just shows you the incredible resilience and the willingness to buy anything even resembling a dip. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know what breaks that. You know, are stocks extremely expensive? Sure they are. Does that mean stocks can't get even more stupid expensive? Nope. You know, valuation itself is not a reason uh, to take a shot negative on the market. Uh, it is a reason, though. Uh, to be more cautious and to allocate wisely. Look, two-thirds of forecasters as of today still believe that we're going to be in a recession in the next 12 months. I'm part of that two-thirds. I understand the strength that you have in housing. I understand uh, the strength that you have uh, with the confidence that you will have more disinflation. Um, but you still have the long and variable lags. Uh, credit is starting to tighten. These things matter. The leading economic indicators matter. The massively deeply inverted yield curve matters. So, it, you know, it, it, as, as I always say, you know, in my presentations, it's not about what you're seeing today. It's about what the forward leading indicators are telling you. It's about what credit is telling you. Um, and, you know, as of right now, uh, with the exception of of this incredible strength that we have in the housing market, which is important, uh, I still think that when you look at the weakness in orders, when you look at the global economy, the weakness in Europe, the weakness in China, the weakness in commodities, uh, it is telling you that it is going to continue to get tougher. Uh, and I think as we get into earnings season, you know, will earnings beat again this quarter? Of course they will. They always do. It's a joke. It's a game. Uh, the company, the, the sell side analysts are going to set up the numbers where the companies tell them to, and they're going to give themselves the room. What matters is the trend on earnings. And despite what you see in the stock market going up every day, the trend on forward earnings is still not 
improving. Uh, and that is where I'm different. I, I don't know how deep of a recession we have, and I don't know when a recession starts. But what I believe is the higher for longer thinking that interest rate, that inflation is going to stay problematic. I do not believe in immaculate disinflation. I do not believe that the U.S. economy is going to grow and yet you're not going to have a problem with wage growth. I just don't see that happening. So that's kind of where I am right now. I wouldn't say I'm wildly bearish. I'm not saying I'm going out and shorting the stock market. I'm just saying this is not a great time to be incurring risk. Yeah, I mean, when you look at some of these inflation metrics, Mohammed Al Arain was just discussing today about how UK's uh, hasn't gone down at lot at all. Uh, USA remains a dramatic outlier with inflation rates going down. Ever you were mentioning credit? Uh, I mean, the average credit card now is at a record twenty point six nine percent. It's five points higher than the beginning of last year. We saw in the pandemic, especially around 2021, people paying down um, credit card balances with their Trump bucks and their Biden bucks and everything else. Uh, but now, you know, debt is going up uh, rapidly and most people have, you know, variable interest rates on their cards. Uh, yeah. So that's just, I think, you know, probably another, you know, factor in all this, right? I mean, there, yeah. there's going to be a crunch and then a lot of people are obviously going to have to uh, liquidate their TD Ameritrade trade accounts to pay off some of this debt. <laughs> you know, but, but before we get into the credit card side, I just want to address the first thing you said about, you know, the UK and, and, and Ari, Ella Arian's comments. I mean, they just had inflation print today where core inflation is still going up in a zero percent growth world. That is stagflation. Now, is it all because of Brexit and the tighter labor market that they have or whatever it is? Uh, they are experiencing the worst of what I've worried about, you know, for the developed world broadly, that we could still be seeing meaningful inflationary pressures in a very low growth world. I'm not saying the U.S. is going to become the U.K., uh, but you're seeing what people are talking about. I'm not the only one who's worried about the long-term labor shortage. I'm not the only one who's worried about long-term energy and commodity underinvestment. There's been a lot of ink spilled over these issues over the last couple of years, and it is playing out in the worst way possible in the U.K., just think about that. This seven and eight percent core inflation that hasn't come down, despite the BOE tightening, despite the ECB tightening, uh, despite weakness all around them, uh, they're still sitting there with this super high inflation and no growth. That's an ugly scenario. Um, on uh, on credit cards, yeah. I mean, I always give the example of you know I I travel a good bit, so I got a United Airlines card with a interest rate of twenty eight percent. You know, it really is extraordinary. And we now have credit card debt going through the levels of before the uh, of before the pandemic. You have autos uh, starting to uh, go through delinquency rates on 30 days, 60 day, 90 days that was above the late recession, the end of the recession in 09 in 2010. So is it concentrated in subprime? Is it concentrated in the bottom? quartile of the economy? Yeah, of course it is. But I do think that we've learned a lesson, and I'm not saying it spreads like the GFC, but it starts there, right? That's where you start to see the stress. Um, and it's a problem. And I think that all of the excess goods buying that occurred uh, by all of the easy money that you referred, the Biden bucks and the Trump bucks, 
that created too much uh, buying and people were doing buying with debt. And you just look at how expensive capital is getting, not just in credit cards, but auto loans. Look at auto loans. I mean, auto loan rates are up above uh, 8% on average. Used car auto loan rates are up above 10% on average. Uh, and if you are anybody, like a, any corporation, any small business person who uh, has a capital intensive business and you're rolling debt, you're rolling that debt to much, much higher levels. You know, the other day, yesterday, we got a uh, a new starts in multifamily that was really surprising because uh, it was so strong. Now, it's super volatile data, but it doesn't really match what we're hearing elsewhere in the Beige Book, in the NFIBs of companies saying that they are not starting new projects because of the pressure on much, much higher cost of capital. So, you know, Again, long and variable lags, they play out in a long time and sometimes in really insidious ways for that for that bottom quartile consumer. One thing we're seeing is that oil and gas has remained cheap. Um, it's obviously an issue of demand, right? I mean, we still have there's a lot of the same supply issues. Uh, you war in Ukraine and um, Russia remains unabetted. Norway's has a lot of issues with maintenance of their rigs and not to mention I mean, we have had several, several, several weeks of underinvestment, and that's just a longer term trend. So yeah. that just that's all China and Europe and everything else, right, Tim? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's mostly a demand issue, I think, but it is also, you know, Russia is definitely selling and flooding as much oil onto the market. It does, to use your word, un, it seem look look unabetted, as you said. Um, but I do think that the supply issue, the demand issue is at the core of it, right? The China recovery uh, just really hasn't happened. They've got some better, uh, you know, restaurant numbers and visitations that way as people get out of their apartments. Uh, Macau is on fire, just like Vegas is on fire. Um, but the industrial recovery hasn't really happened in China. Uh, China is making the decision that they don't think that they can stimulate their way out of a housing problem. I always say the very simple and obvious thing that that bull markets are about confidence and optimism and bear markets are about pessimism. Well, when you overbuild and you have the, you know, the China real estate I'm talking about, residential, when, when you overbuild and, and people know apartments are empty and yet they're selling them for more than they paid and you can flip an apartment even though it doesn't cash flow, um, you know, when, when the music ends on that, you are going to turn to pessimism and that pessimism is going to last. And, 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 you know, China would love to have consumers out there spending a lot more money uh, and driving more and traveling more and buying apartments, but you just can't even in a, a central centrally controlled economy, you can't instill confidence. And when the real estate situation in China and so many of the tier two and three cities looks as ugly as it does, the Chinese can stimulate all they want, but they're pushing on a string. They are not going to create uh, consumer confidence there. Germany's in a recession. We talked about the UK in a recession. Uh, you know, you look outside of India and actually Japan, maybe Mexico, there aren't a lot of bright spots for demand uh, globally. Maybe Brazil looks a little better. But overall, uh, the demand picture isn't great. And it doesn't 
look like it's going to be great. Now, we'll we'll see what happens with the refilling of the SPR at the rate that they're doing it. Uh, you know, you'll have kids out of college by the time they refill the SPR. But, uh, you know, we'll see. The important thing is, though, is the long-term bull story uh, that I talk about, that Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs talks a lot about, that, that a lot of people talk about, uh, has really only gotten stronger uh, because you see the under the 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 reason to underinvest just got stronger. The Baker Hughes rig, rig count is making new lows. Uh, ENP production all over the country is all over the world is slowing down, uh, and this is what that real strong bull thesis needs is for the for the spenders for the producers. Um, from everything from Total to Exxon to the ENP companies, uh, they need to see that weak demand to justify saying, hey, guys, we don't know what the future environment is going to look like. We're going to continue to return more cash than we are going to spend on resources in the out years. Uh, that is a total paradigm shift. A paradigm shift has just started and it is going to continue. And weak demand periods like that just reinforce to the investors and to the CEOs that they should continue to underinvest in resource production and they should continue to run their businesses for free cash flow that they return to shareholders. And we're kind of seeing a issue with commodities, right? It's kind of a mixed mixed story. Things like wheat futures have hit four month lows, but then you still have strong demand um, despite inflation and in several other aspects, largely maybe due to uh, China's reopening and and you know what whatever we consider of the recovery. Yeah, overall though, if you look at broadly's, it tells the story of weak demand. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 so you'd be surprised to see. Uh, I always say sometimes you could give an, an investor or me tomorrow's newspaper, and I still couldn't make money. Uh, if you showed me how how weak commodities were going to be, uh, and that's a reflection of global demand. I would have told you that it would be really hard for the stock market to keep going higher in that environment. Um, so it's they're they're two they're, they're telling two very different stories. Copper, look how weak copper is. You know, Doctor Copper, that's supposed to give us an indication. Uh, hell, even semiconductors, the semi space, because of optimism over AI and GPU consumption and large language models and all that. Uh, you know. Semis are kind of a modern day commodity in the sense that, you know, when you look at demand trends, uh, they tell you just like copper uh, can tell you, you know, how what demand looks like for the global economy. And if you look at exports out of Korea, out of South Korea, out of Japan, out of Taiwan, they're pretty punk. Now, uh, there was a little bit of a recovery in the last week, but they've been really soft. They've been especially soft into China. So there are a lot of indicators in the commodity world and gold is different. Gold is really like a currency, right? G mm -hmm. Gold is your hedge to the never ending competitive devaluation of fiat currencies. But but if you look at oil, you look at copper and in another kind of world, you look at semis and just overall broad semi demand, you do not see a broad uh, a demand environment that anybody should have a lot of optimism for. There's an Economist article um, that was talking about how wage prices are scarier in theory than practice, and that rising salaries are a poor predictor of inflation. I mean, we've often talked about the you know wage price spiral here as an inflationary mm -hmm. metric. I'm just wondering kind of what your thoughts were on that. Um, 
I mean, was the seventies, you know, flawed evidence for the existence of spirals or what do you think? Yeah, I just think I never am into when people try to compare the current economic environment to a previous economy. You know, you hear guys come on TV and say, I think this is just like 1994. Mm -hmm. Kathy Wood was at a conference that I had the keynote at the other day, and she said she thinks it's just like uh, the late 19-teens, that we got the roaring 20s, therefore, ahead of us. I just think it's stupid. The world is always different. Yeah. It's always different. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, it rhymes, but it is always different. And what is different now than in the 1970s in the United States and in the developed world is demographics. That is the biggest change, right? In the 1970s, we were on the cusp of beginning globalization. Now we're on the cusp of the decline of globalization. You think of the baby boomers, kind of the, the baby boom starting after the Second World War in 1945 mm -hmm. and really getting big in the early 50s. You know, people were coming into the labor market. People were coming in at 25, 30 years old in the 1970s. And people really think about the late 1970s when they talk about hyperinflation. Um, it, but commodities also mattered then, too. You had price restrictions on oil in the United States uh, that got deregulated. And therefore, there was uh, the anticipation of the that deregulation. So you went out, you had a lot of exploration. We found a lot more oil in the United States in that period. That had a part of the disinflation that occurred. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think it's different in every time, in every era. And the things that are driving what I and, and I'm not saying there's a wage price spiral. Look, if we go into a recession here, as I think we eventually will, there's going to be less wage pressure. You know, yeah. if you look at long-term charts of CPI and growth, they're they're, they're gonna they're gonna reflect one another, right? We are not going to have a situation, no matter how much I think that there's going to be a tight, secularly tight labor market where we're in a recession and yet we still have super high wage growth. That's not going to happen. But the other thing that's different now is we have much more of a service economy. What's the biggest component cost of a service economy? Wages. You match that with deglobalization. You match that with uh, demographics, really the most important piece. And I think it looks different in this era than it has looked in any any preceding era. There's, we don't have any context. We don't have any um, example to look at where you had a declining labor force while manufacturing was growing and this kind of uh, demographic reality where we have a lot of retirees and not enough young people coming into the labor force or a 40-year period where capital uh, and management made out while labor lagged inflation for decade after decade. So I just I don't think the historical examples are very helpful. I certainly don't think the, the example of the 70s uh, is helpful at all because I think so many of the dynamics then are opposite to what they are now. Yeah, and if it's the 20s, then we have prohibition coming right around the corner too. I suppose <laughs> you know that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, anything we missed out on this week, Tim? Uh, I mean, a couple of things. Powell is speaking. He's giving his what they used to call the Humphrey Hawkins testimony right now. Maybe that's a reason why equities are under a little bit of pressure. The The market is now pricing in 80 percent odds of a uh, of of 
Powell hiking again in July. Look, one thing that we've been right about, we bet we said for a long time that we think the Fed summary of economic projections, the dot plot, is going to be more accurate than the pricing of the bond market, which is an unpopular thing to say, right? We think that the the government is going to be right and the market is going to be wrong. Well, the government has been right. The Fed has said they're staying higher for longer. Well, that just keeps getting right. There's no more cuts getting priced into the back half of this year as the recession keeps getting pushed out. And while people talk about, you know, immaculate disinflation, it's not what the Fed is looking at when they look at core CPI going sideways at 5% and housing staying stronger and wages staying stronger. So now you have 80% chance of a hike in July and a 15% chance of a hike in September, and they're going to be data dependent. Look, if the if the data doesn't get weaker, if the data doesn't get meaningfully weaker from here, the, the Fed very well could um, hike in, uh, again. Look, on an absolute basis, Fed funds at five or five and a quarter over a long, if you look at a long period of history, aren't crazy tight, right? The Fed is guessing at where are they restrictive? At what point are they restrictive? The Taylor rules suggest that you got to get Fed funds above where current inflation is running. They're basically right there versus where core inflation is right now. So they still, to this point, anyone can argue, based on the Taylor rule, uh, that they're not all that restrictive yet. And maybe the first 200, 300, 400 basis points didn't really do much. You were just kind of getting back to some kind of of a of a reasonably normalized level. Um, so I think that's important. I, I I think that you know the Fed has more work to do. They've said that it's been the right thing to believe them when they say that. I think the other thing that's interesting is just how weak China's recovery is. You know, we talked about uh, the risk that China could become more bellicose in the in a recession when the when 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 people are struggling more when youth unemployment rates are going much much higher it makes sense uh to in in maintaining your strength position for g that's the time arguably in history where as 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 biden called him yesterday a dictator mm -hmm. uh that's when dictators do these kinds of things when they need a distraction when they need to change up uh, the current uh, risks uh, to their uh, autocracy. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, he he called him a dictator, uh, but this is in light of Blinken's Secretary of State's Blinken's kind of grand tour, um, where he sat down with Xi and and their foreign minister. Uh, so I don't know if I was surprised by that or if it's just like a really aggressive balancing act. But you know, there's talk that it was a productive trip, but then you know we call Xi a dictator. So I I don't know. Uh, that's how you get to talk. Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. And obviously, yeah. there's stuff going behind going on behind the curtains that we don't see. And, you know, Biden has a long history of unscripted comments that mm -hmm. need to get walked back after the fact. Mm -hmm. I'd be surprised if that was an unscripted comment. I, I think Biden was genuinely disappointed um, that Blinken didn't get much. And as soon as Blinken gets on the plane to come home, uh, you know, the, 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 the Chinese say, you know, that we're being treated unfairly and, and they make really some negative comments about the United States. So, uh, it's not good. It's not productive. It doesn't seem to be going in the right way. We don't even have, uh, the military, uh, you know, we don't even have lines of communication to make sure we don't have, you know, uh, 
mistakes with skirmishes in the Straits of Taiwan. And that's that's a scary thing. Look, I, I go back to what you know, Kyle Bass has talked about, Foreign Affairs has talked about, and Elon Musk even said when they asked him the other day, like, what do you think? And he said, Musk basically said, and I'm not a big Musk fan, but I think he's right in this comment when he said, look, you don't have to read between the lines on G. He tells you what he's going to do and what he has told you they're going to do. So they're going to look to reintegrate Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I'm, that's not a base case for us. I, I, I wouldn't have a base case on that. But I think it's cavalier to just assume that it's just saber rattling and he's never going to do it. The guy has done what he said he was going to do around Omicron and shut and lockdowns and so forth. Uh, he's playing a different game. And I think that we are making a mistake if we think that Xi is going to make logical uh, decisions based on what we would do. You know, we as Americans would think about, oh, well, how do you how do you stimulate the economy? How do you get through this real estate issue? How do you deal with your youth employment problem? How do you deal with your environmental issues and so forth? He may be thinking very differently in terms of a 20 and a 50 and a 100 year game uh, that puts in his mind China in a better position to be a dominant, to be the dominant global power. Yeah, and as we mentioned before, the political dynamics are different now that they got rid of the two-term policy. Um, so, you know, we may see him at the top spot for the duration of his lifetime. Yeah, he um, is a dictator. Yeah. yeah. All right, sounds good, Tim. Um, for all our listeners and subscribers, uh, thanks for your time today, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.